Hi, I'm Tyra G., your host at Frankly Speaking with Tyra G. Welcome again to our virtual global gathering of phenomenal women and those who love you. Yes, you mothers, daughters, grand and great-grandmothers, fearsome and generous, humble and honest in pursuit of new possibilities and purpose. We dig deep and we come up strong. For those of you joining us for the first time, each month we explore a new theme. It's inspired by you. Yes, I said you. Together we bravely walk into places where tradition has taught us that there are some things we just don't talk about, but not at this table. And no matter how hard judgment knocks, it will not get in. Beloved ladies, here we live beyond the wreckage. Every week, we meet here for one hour to experience, encourage, and empower each other. We share aha moments and stories that have been left in our pockets for too long. Every week, we start right where we are. Although many of your voices will speak light into darkness, there is no insignificant person around this table. Each show has three segments, the beginning, the middle, and the end. The first segment where I'll walk you in and set the table for the show. The middle is our show's sister talk centerpiece, where one of you phenomenal women, generous and fearless, join me in the interview seat. I call the last segment, It's Not Over. Here I deposit thoughts of empowerment and encouragement for you to take with. Think of it as a spiritual doggy bag you can take away from the table just in case your soul needs a sweet snack while we're apart. You're listening to Radio Fairfax, Fairfax, Virginia, on your TV, computer, or mobile device. And we are webcast worldwide on the Internet at www.radiofairfax.org. Join us at 8 o'clock Eastern Standard Time every Saturday evening beginning September 9, 2017. And should you miss us, no worries. You can find us on our YouTube channel, www.franklyspeakingwithtyrag.com. And if you happen to feel like you want to talk with me, you can. It's easy. Email me, tyra at tyragarlington.com. Thank you so much for tuning in. I can't praise enough the composer and performer of our theme song, Mr. Courtney Nero. Courtney, my favorite saxophone player and my friend. Courtney decided that a radio show called Frankly Speaking with Tyra G ought to have the perfect theme song called I'm Listening. Makes you want to dance, huh? Thank you, Courtney. Each week I like to begin by creating a virtual common thought, a thought space where we can inhabit together during our time. To do that, I I like to ask one of my favorite questions, what if? It is so pregnant with possibilities. We can start from where we are and go anywhere. But before we do that, this week, I want to share some phenomenal thoughts, personal thoughts, actually, before I ask the what-if question for the week. I wrote these thoughts out a long time ago as a blog on my website. They seem to bridge where we want to go go today quite nicely. The title is, Be together, not the same. When I walk daily, I intentionally unplug. There is nothing on my body to indicate how many steps I've taken during my four-mile walk. 
I listen to the birds singing and the ducks honking and the dogs barking as they all make love to spring. I notice new flowers in bloom. I'm at peace. Yet sometimes, today for instance, unwanted thoughts insert themselves. Today it was the concept of othering. I don't like it. And I like even less the fact that it's being intentionally used in this season's political lexicon. It's not good news. By othering, we mean any action by which any individual or group becomes mentally classified in someone's mind as not one of us. Rather than always remembering that every person is a complex bundle of emotions and ideas, and motivations, and reflexes, and priorities, and many other subtle aspects. It's sometimes easier to dismiss them as being in some way less human and less worthy of respect and dignity than we are. Now picture this. Suddenly and unexpectedly, my othering thoughts surrendered to the musical laughter of children playing in the park. I walked over to the brightly colored playground and watched stay-at-home mothers talk with one another and their, excuse me, while their toddlers played. I could see cultural diversity in their clothing and hear it in their language during their conversations. A little boy who obviously had a physical disability fell and he started to cry. But before his mother could reach him, one of his little girl playmates was rubbing and kissing the boo-boo on his knee. She didn't care that he walked differently. She didn't care that English was his second language. They could not have been more than three or four years old, yet she instinctively knew about the power of empathy and love. You know where I'm going with this, right? I wondered at what point do we moderate the instinctive, empathic, loving responses in our babies and introduce attitudes of othering When do they begin to respond to differences as negative rather than positive? How, then, I wondered, can we use the power of play for more than just fun? What if we use play to remind and teach and encourage ourselves to tolerate until we understand enough to accept? When I got home, just out of curiosity, I googled the terms play and inclusion. Would you believe I received 131 million results in 55 seconds? There is actually a national inclusion project. Although it's focused on the inclusion of children with disabilities, this project created a successful rec- rec- excuse me, recreational inclusion model that encourages and facilitates community inclusion. While it benefits all those involved, children with and without disabilities, staff, and parents, that's us. What if we could all see and be seen as equal to, unique, not as a part of a collective group, be addressed and spoken about by our name, be encouraged to be ourselves, be given enough time to be culturally competent, Be given the time and opportunity to understand, to be listened to and understood. Wow. Just think about that. So our question today is, what if we learn to be together even though we are not the same? What possibilities would we uncover? 
after the break, I want to introduce you to one of you phenomenal women seated at the table who's also passionate about inclusion and diversity. Stay close now. Now to repeat the question for today, what if we as grown-ups learn to be together even though we are not the same, or at least respect the diversity that made our country great? What possibilities we would we uncover? What possibilities can you think of? With that, I want you to welcome Ms. Umbreen Rizvi to the interview chair. And uh, thank you so much, Umbreen, for joining me today. It's special. We're going to make it special. Yeah, thank you, Tyra, for having me here. I um, always ask our guests to let you know them in a different way. And I'm going to ask Umbreen in her own words to tell you a little bit about herself. Sure. Um, so, Tyra, um, I'm originally from Pakistan. Yes. And uh, I was two years old uh, when I moved to uh, Paris uh, because my father was, uh, you know, with the Pakistani police and he was the first uh, Pakistani representative at Interpol. So, he was posted back in the 70s uh, at the headquarters, which were in France, in Paris. Mm-hmm. And that's why I traveled with him, my brother and my mother, uh, back in the 70s. And that's where I grew up. That's where I did my um, education, elementary, middle school, and high school until I came here to the United States. And as you think about that transition, actually, you had three transitions. The first one you didn't know much about, right? I guess. Yeah, yeah. at two years (laughs) old. Could you... Could you have any feelings once you got to Paris how your family was receiving the transition? Because change, no matter when it occurs, is difficult. Could you feel any differently when your parents, when your whole family moved to Paris from Pakistan? You know, obviously I was so young at the beginning, but I do remember some of the struggles. Uh, First, uh, uh, my mother did not know the language at all. And uh, my father had studied it back home, but uh, he was finally practicing it while being in the country. So I remember them struggling a little bit, and we were so young. But over the years, um, as we grew up, we stayed in a very small town in the suburbs of Paris. Mm -hmm. And everyone practically knew us because I was the only person who looked foreign, but who had this perfect French accent, who totally assimilated into the French culture. And um, as the years passed by, we were just treated like any other normal Parisian mm-hmm. or uh, French person. So I did not see any differences, and things got a lot better for my parents as they settled in more over the years. How about your brother? Same for my brother. Uh, mm-hmm. No issues at all. He's uh, five years older than me. Oh, okay. Um, he had to adapt uh, to the French system, so he was like seven when he came. Uh, but again, no problem in picking up the language. It was a little... A challenging at the beginning because obviously he was seven, mm-hmm. but we both did so well in our respective grades and uh, in, in the French school system as well mm-hmm. that uh, even our teachers, if they still remember us, would always say amazing things about us. Well, I do know one thing, having having been an educator, is that the early year, early years, children have a facility to pick up language so quickly. So at two, I imagine you were like a sponge. Yeah, because uh, one thing that we did reinforce was our native language at home. Mm-hmm. So whenever we would come from school, my brother and I would automatically sp- start speaking in French. Mm-hmm. And that's where my parents would just stop us right there. They would say, no, when you come home, you have to speak and stay connected to your roots. 
That's why Urdu, which is our native yes, language, yes, yes. was enforced at home. And then we would be obviously uh, studying French, but in the French system, you also take additional foreign languages. Yes, yes. So I was also learning Spanish. My brother took German, uh-huh. and we also had to take either Latin or Greek as well. Oh, Lord, I remember having to take Latin. And yeah. It is a dead language, that much <laughs> I know. Yes. But you know what else you just said to me just sparked something. Um, I worked for a while at the uh, Northern Virginia Community College, and they have a huge English as a second language program. But what I also learned, because we were community college, is so many families required, as your parents did, that they spoke their native languages when they came home. Now, what's interesting, your parents were also learning French. Yeah. What we learned is so many of the families here did not, are not learning English as their children are. Okay. And uh, one of the consequences, which is, a little bit sad is that the children get stuck in the middle when it comes to be a medical issue or an uh, educational issue. The child has to be the translator for the parents and the teacher or the doctor. And what I learned was their cultural traditions, we don't have cultural competence, we in America, for a number of other cultures. And we didn't understand that in some Asian cultures it's improper for a child to talk to a doctor about a parent or a grandparent. So there are all kinds of nuances that we who just toop-a-doop-a-doop along, all, you know, we're, we grew up here, this is what we know, we have to work hard at cultural competence and welcome those that are coming to our country and adding to it with their skills. So, wow, that's a wow. So, uh, but your parents saying, we want you to speak this at home, this at school, but they were also learning French at the same time. Yes. So it was, they were doing that for cultural traditions, right? Yes. Okay. Did you leave any other relatives in Pakistan that you communicated with? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like my aunts, my uncles, my cousins. Um, we had no family in France. Oh, uh, wow. My father was just there for work purposes. Uh-huh. Uh, but every summer we would uh, travel back to Pakistan. So we stay attached. Like my parents were very concerned. Uh, about the fact that it was very important for us to be culturally attached and knowing our roots. And their family themselves, like their brothers and sisters, everyone was there. So it totally made sense for us. And I'm thinking probably I am older than your parents were when that happened. But how hard it is to make a transition where separation anxiety is a big issue. Yeah, You love your family, but still you miss those that you've left behind. Yes. So tell me a little bit about the uh, French school system. Well, it is a lot uh, rigorous unless, you know, things have changed now because uh, I can just talk about my personal experience. Uh, the days are longer in the French system. Uh, we would be in school from 8 to 5, but uh, there's a but to it. Uh, we would also get about an hour and a half of lunch in between. So when it was lunchtime, I would just walk back home, have lunch. Uh, My mother uh, never worked and was not even allowed to work with the diplomatic status that they had. So she would be home, and um, I'd I'd eat lunch, spend time with her, and then go back to school. So I I like that. And also the the other thing is um, 
it's a well-rounded education. You don't get a choice to necessarily pick your subjects. Oh. Like, uh, unlike, you know, the high school or the middle school where you are picking and choosing, yes. you pretty much take everything from art to music to science mm. to math to languages to history, social sciences, you just name it. So you come out a lot more uh, culturally inclined and well-rounded around the world mm-hmm. uh, in com- it, when it comes to history and everything. You pretty know everything that's happening outside the country, like, mm-hmm. you know, um, about ancient civilizations. I just have such vivid memories uh, of, like, my history teacher and how we were fascinated and, you know, the, the r- culturally rich aspect, rich aspect of the French system blew me away. But as time passed by, like when you get to the lycée, which is the equivalent of um, high school, high school uh-huh. it gets a lot more rigorous because um, you have to at some point diverge whether you're going to do the baccalauréat. Yeah. Either it's A, B, C, D. So if you're going to arts, if you're going to business, if you're going to science, you know, that's where it gets a lot harder and a lot more competitive and less choices to enter into the university level. Um, but uh, honestly, uh, when I look at the French standard, the formative years that I call them, and when I look at the American system that my daughters are in because, you know, they were born in, in the United States and yes. are growing up here, it's like days and night apart. And we do have a lot of discussion at home because my husband is a product of the American system since he grew up in this country as well. Uh-huh. And I always argue like with him like how this is so easier here and how much more restrictive like just to the point of we learn cursive at kindergarten and we write it with encre de chine which is the black ink Mm -hmm. with uh, you know uh, a fountain pen Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and you know everything has to be absolutely immaculate and if you look at the notebooks um, they have like five lines in between uh, and the letters are clearly measured and there's a whole discipline around it that I do not find in the American system and just baffles me. Not a criticism, just a different mindset. And I can um, put a little bit of historical perspective there. Um, I always tell people I'm at the end of the toilet paper roll. But when I started teaching um, first grade, uh, my mother came to help me set up. I was in Columbus. She was in Cincinnati, Ohio. And she came to help me set up my room. And my mother was, if you can, well... She wore gloves to school to teach and heels and everything. That's the way they presented back then. And her classroom was a wonderland. So she had clear lines for cursive on her board. So she made those clear lines. I guess it did it with glue. And she asked me to write. And I did. She says, oh, no, 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 no. You can't possibly teach that. That's awful. So my mother gives me paper. And for the rest of the summer, I'm learning how to write meticulous cursive and, and printing to teach my children. That is not, and technology has a lot to do with it, yes. but that is not uh, a priority right now. Yeah. And you can tell on anything you ask somebody to write, which is kind of sad. But I was getting back to, I've been in Paris a couple of three times, and I'm fascinated by both the art. And I can remember my first trip, I went every day for five days to the Sorbonne. Mm. And that's, even in their antiquities area, that's where I learned about Egypt and wanted to go there. So I think you were submerged in um, an aesthetic environment that was so conducive. It was like natural, like you said, art or this. So how did you decide to be who you who you became? You know, um, 
I have been just blessed. I, I just was very lucky to grow up as a Pakistani in France. And then on top of it, experience amazing travels with uh, my parents. My father traveled quite a bit in his, uh, in his role as the head of narcotics in the Middle East and Asia. And we would always go to these amazing trips, you know, with VIP treatment. So, I mean, I've been to Mongolia. I've been to China. We came to the United States a couple of times. I, I mean, I've been to Africa. I've been to Egypt, you know. So um, I think, like, just being very blessed where I was and who I was as a person between two cultures, uh, you know, and experiencing the travels, um, I just became who I am today. And then coming, obviously, to the United States has also impacted me quite a bit and made me who I am. And, you know, you chose, I asked you to choose a topic, yeah. and you chose diversity and inclusion. Yes. And the reason I kept wanted to expand on who you are, because people, I think, have a better feel now, the listeners do, how you could go to that place, you yeah. know. And I want you, before you start talking about that, uh, how you see diversity and how you see inclusion, because the one thing I've learned is we need to often operationally define how we're using a word because people hear different things. So would you mind sharing that with, with us? Absolutely. So for me, diversity and inclusion, it's, a very, it's very subjective and very dear to my heart. Um, I am a clear example of diversity and inclusion. Yes, you are. Just because of what we just talked about. Yes. The fact that I'm also a Muslim, mm -hmm. you know, um, obviously, uh, Islam is in the big headline news nowadays. It's very unfortunate. Um, I speak, you know, like I said, Urdu, French, English. Uh, I read Arabic as well because uh, the Holy Quran is written mm -hmm. in Arabic and we read Arabic fluently. Mm -hmm. um, so, and being able to merge cultures together on a daily basis. Yeah. So we have like, I'm living in the United States. But I'm impacted by the culture that we have here. My daughters are born here. They have not lived the life that I lived in France. Yes. So I'm bringing the French culture, the Pakistani culture, the American culture in a household, speaking three different kinds of languages on a daily basis, trying to do that gymnastics, being accepted for who I am yes. in my work, in my professional life, as well as in my personal life. Diversity starts with who you are, what you bring on the table, and no matter what religion, faith, or, uh, you know, race you are, you come in all, uh, you know, all in, being ready to accept everyone, whether, whatever their gender, their sexual orientation, their race, their beliefs are, this is where diversity and inclusion is. Being able to uh, mingle, being able to accept, being able to be accepted, uh, being able to include people of different backgrounds into your circle. That's what means for me diversity and inclusion, and it starts with me. Let me ask you this. Obviously, you have a healthy and positive attitude. Uh, how does that work for you? First of all, you didn't even tell us what you're doing professionally. You just blew that. You know, obviously, you're working. Yes. You just said that. Tell us what you do. So I work uh, for a large bank. Um, I am a director there, and I basically serve as a liaison between the regulators of the bank, as well as top executives. And we mentioned diversity and inclusion. I'm also the ambassador uh, for our department on the diversity and inclusion committee mm -hmm. uh, because uh, this team is being driven across all corporations nowadays in America. Yes. 
um, after, just to give you an example, after the incident that happened in um, Charlottesville at, yeah. uh, you know, near UVA, messages came out in many corporations across the United States that we do not tolerate such behavior. Mm -hmm. We are all inclusive and diverse here, and we accept people from all backgrounds, but what we will not tolerate is intolerance and injustice. So how, how was it? Okay, let, let's, let's unpack that, because you and I both know a lot of things can come across. I've, I've spent 22 years in a corporate yeah. environment. A lot of directives can come out, but the reception of those. Of course, we um, we must comply in private sector in order to keep our jobs. We yes. must, the behavior. But my theory is you can always legislate behavior but not attitudes. So what I'm asking you is to think about your environment reflectively and kind of let me know, let us know, how was that received, uh, that directive from your particular company? when that came across? I mean, for a lot of us, it was the first time we were receiving a message like this. Okay. Um, actually, uh, we had received a message when the travel ban was put in place. Hmm. Um, you know, my executive vice president knew how I felt about this whole thing. Uh, and he went, I believe, to our CEO so that our CEO issued a message to the company saying that, uh, you know, we are standing by our employees who are being impacted today by the travel ban, mm -hmm. and we will do whatever we could, whatever we can to support them. That was the first message that ever came out. Mm -hmm. And then the second message about what happened, you know, in Charlottesville. So I see that, um, you know, there's more discussions, right? There's more things happening around us in this country and other places around the world that are becoming us to open a dialogue. And I've never seen that uh, before in my, uh, you know, 20 plus years in, uh, you know, the professional setting that I've been. Mm -hmm. It's always been in the back of people's mind, but never anyone would be bridging the topic. Mm -hmm. And now it has become one of an imperative. Now, it's just the beginning of a very, very long discussion. Because as you know, this country has gone through such a journey in itself. Yes. You know, and in you know short that. Year. Yes, yes, I do. I, yeah. Yes, I do. And... Um, for me, it's the first step, but this is not, you know, like, oh, yeah, we're winning or everything. It's just opening a dialogue. We, mm -hmm. we still have a lot, a lot, a lot of work to do, but I think that it puts people at ease to see that there's a realization okay. and awareness. Okay. And now, how old are your daughters now? Help me remember. I have a 19-year-old. Yes. Um, I have a 12-year-old and a 9-year-old. So I'm thinking... That's three different perspectives yes. you receive on what's going on in the world at any given time. Yeah. Um, I'm guessing that the 19-year-old educated here has a lot of um, teen uh, paradigms going on in her life. Yes. And so um, are they comfortable? Do they feel safe? Do they? I know that you make them feel safe at home. I know that's your job. That's, yeah. That's the job of parents. But are they doing okay otherwise? I do believe that, you know, my 12 and 9-year-old are doing very well, and I don't think that they have, you know, come to the full realization of what's happening. Okay. But, of course, my sophomore in college student uh, has a totally different perspective. Uh -huh. um, you know, she's been ostr ostracized uh, actually in high school and in middle school at a, with a couple of, like, negative comments. 
Uh, where she is in college, no, there has been no issue. But she's very well aware of her surroundings, of the world that we live in, is very sensitive to it, and actually accompanies me to my efforts, you know, to um, educate people. You know, we'll talk about it yes, in a minute about yes. what I'm trying to do. Um, so she's fully on board. And I think uh, me being out there, you know, representing the community and speaking up mm-hmm. makes her go out there as well. At some point, she's still learning, but I think that she looks up to me as, as a role model um, to say that, okay, um, we may be different. I mean, I may, I may not look like, you know, I, I look different, but I have a place in this society and, and I deserve so every bit of it. Yeah. So absolutely beautiful. You know, Um, I do want us to walk a little bit. um, I'm aware of your commitment to diversity and inclusion, and I'm aware that you have not just you're walking the talk. Talk a little bit about what you're doing. Sure. Okay. So about almost two years ago now, um, I co-founded a movement called Muslims Are Us. Mm -hmm. And uh, our role and our mission is to educate People and whether they are Muslims or non-Muslims, um, about the real uh, Islam, the peaceful and beautiful religion that we know, not the religion that is being misrepresented and being hijacked today by either the media, uh, political aspirations, or you know, plain terrorists like ISIS. Mm-hmm. So our mission is to create awareness and educate. Mm-hmm. We do a lot of community work. Um, you know, uh, whenever we can, we partner with shelters, we partner with churches, we do interfaith programs, uh, you know, um, we do charitable, uh, you know, events mm-hmm. where we go in wearing, you know, our shirts saying Muslims are us. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, we go and do our work and people like uh, get, you know, curious who we are, what are we trying to do? Mm-hmm. And our message is just to fight Islamophobia, a word that has become very real in the Webster Dictionary that did not exist many years ago. And we are trying to dispel the myths and the misunderstanding and uh, the lack of awareness and education in people's mind about what Islam is all about. And I'm thinking that there you are in your T-shirts, with and there you are presenting as you look like a beautiful, beautiful person from another culture. And yet the work you're doing is a giving heartfelt work. And for anybody that is harboring negative feelings, that juxtaposition must be confusing to them and, and probably delightfully so to you guys, right? Yes, absolutely. Because here we are, like, Islam right now is associated with violence. Yes. And here we are trying to do good yes. and give back to the community yes. and do charity. Yes. But one of the main pillars of Islam is charity. Yes, it and is. And is to be kind and to be tolerant and to be inclusive. Absolutely. What I want to do is uh, take another short break, and I want us to continue this. Okay? Sure. All right, Ambreen, I'm ready to continue with this conversation. You mentioned one of the things that you do uh, as a part of, actually in the leadership of Muslims RS, is collaborations in terms of interfaith. Can you give an example of uh, one of those collaborations you've done with another faith organization? Um, yes, absolutely. Um, 
we have gone to uh, basically churches, local churches, mm-hmm. uh, and I have actually gone there uh, to uh, help a friend of mine in one of the Sunday schools. Uh-huh. And I came in to basically discuss about women and Islam. And um, the students over there had a lot of questions about the veil and the hijab and the, the burqa, the, the long, yes. uh, you know, that women wear. And, um, and I had to basically, and the women's rights. Mm-hmm. And I had to basically remind them of one thing, that no matter what people say and no matter how you interpret things that are written, um, the prophet was married uh, to Lady Khadija. Lady Khadija was a businesswoman in Arabia in 7th century who was doing trade with nomads and other Arab people. When she met Prophet Muhammad, she was absolutely astounded by his honesty and, you know, by his heart, like what a kind-hearted person. She sent a proposal to him for marriage. Uh Uh-oh. Yeah. So I just want to leave you with this thought, and that's what I said to the students over there, to show how much power and how much uh, respect women have in Islam. And I think a lot of us, including Muslims today, mm-hmm. tend to forget this. She is a very highly elevated lady in our hearts in Islam, and the Prophet was blessed you know, for his um, descendant by a young girl named Lady Fatima. Mm-hmm. That's another thought that I want to leave our, you know, audience with. Okay. Again, a woman, very highly respected in Islam. So women have, you know, a great place in Islam, and I think people do not understand this. Now, if different cultures have changed mm-hmm. the message of Islam by not allowing, for example, women to drive, by not allowing women to work, mm-hmm. by not allowing women to have an education, mm-hmm. They have gone astray, and they are not following the true message of Islam. Very interesting. As you were telling the first story, yes, I kept on thinking, I'm every woman. It's all in me. And then now we back back. So culture yes. has changed the original story. Yes. So, all right, let's just let's fantasize for a second. You have a magic wand. You have the ability to change the perspective. Uh, to a more positive face for Islam. What kinds of things would you do? Obviously, history is going to be one of them. Yes. What would you do to impact today's world and today's perceptions and paradigms? You know what I would like ideally to do is to take us back to Saudi Arabia, to Arabia, back when the religion started. Okay. I would like ideally for us to do a time travel back to 7th century in Islam, and see what the situation was when the religion came. Okay. About how people were, you know, what they were, you know, worshipping, what was happening, the rites and everything, and then understand the evolution during the time of the Prophet, because after the Prophet passed away, there was a lot of dissension and wars and things happened in Islam. Yes, But I just want to be able to travel back from the time he had his revelation up to his passing away, those 20 years between 40 and 60 years when he was uh, of age, to go back and to see how he treated people, how Islam came about, what Islam did for people. That's what we need really to go back to. 
me trying to preach the choir, trying to change things, I think everyone needs a memory refresh in their mind of what the real Islam is all about. And that's the only way we can do this is to go back in time. Now, you know what's interesting as I was listening to you, you know, I'm very visual. Yes. So all, all of a sudden I see movies, technology, podcasts, you know, you have to go where the eyes are. Yeah. And I think of young people particularly because they're always looking down in, yeah. that, little, in that little device in their hands. Uh, is there a way you could envision uh, the entertainment industry, the uh, communication industry helping you with your magic wand? Can you see how that would be? I think, yeah, there, there has been like uh, movies made about uh, the message of Islam. But I think that we haven't focused much about, you know, like there's historical facts about how Islam came about. Yes. But I don't think we have ever focused about the true impact and, you know, like the true message. I think like it's all chronological, how it happened, what happened and everything. But I don't think there is an understanding of the message itself about how we need to be today as a Muslim. Whether you are in America, whether you are in Saudi Arabia, or whether you are in Europe, wherever you are in any part of the world, I think that people, um, you know, some of us have missed the true essence and the true message of why there are such things in Islam and why there isn't such things in Islam. So if I had the opportunity, I think I would like to research and go back to that time. And obviously, if, you know, shows like yours, um, you know, or movies or uh, documentaries, anything that can help, because we are in an age of social media, we're in an age of technology, anything that can help, the more we do this, the more. But we have to be also careful, because a lot of people have this thing that, we cannot insult the image of the prophet. We cannot represent the prophet. So there are certain limitations, but I still think that with those limitations, we can still work it through yes, to I'm pass the you. message across. I am hearing you, Umbreen. I really am understanding what you're saying right there. Yeah. Um, the custodian or the steward yes. of your project yeah. would have to be very sensitive yes. in how things were portrayed visually. But the history, yeah, the history, I don't know. In my mind, I'm thinking that there has to be a way. Yes, um, absolutely. Just like uh, as a Christian, yeah, I know the only way I can represent, yeah, represent Christianity is to study it mm-hmm. and to understand it and to understand my role and my journey and my blessings and why I'm here, why I was even created. Yeah, and in my mind. I see uh, my purpose is to encourage and to include and, and to empower. That, that's the way I'm translating what I believe I was, who I would believe I was created to be. So your dream is big, but it's not impossible. I totally agree with you. Uh, there is a lot of literature out there, a lot of books, fantastic books. That Some of them are actually on, on our website on muslimsaras.org. Um, and... Um, there's a lot of materials from different authors of different faiths, different perspective, that if people took the time to put together research, that they will be absolutely amazed. So uh, it's not impossible, mm-hmm. uh, but it will you know, require a mindset, a different mindset yes. to have that objective and you know, that vision. I, um, 
I'm smiling because I, I met an African prince, and he told me that impossible is merely a word to describe the degree of difficulty. Yeah. And I take that on now because, you know, oh, I can't do it. No, that's not true. Everybody can do their dreams. They just have to know they can. So um, with that, I gave you, before I, before I ask you to read your letter, would you, should anyone listening to you want to reach out to you or your organization, can you tell them how to do that? Absolutely. Uh, thank you, Tyra, for saying that. So we do have a website, www.muslimsareus.org. We also have a Facebook page with muslimsareus.org, a Twitter account at muslimsareus, and our email is info at muslimsareus.org. I love it. I absolutely love it. And you have an assignment that I give every one of my guests, and I'm having so much fun with this. I ask, for those of you listening for the first time, that each one of my guests sit down with herself and think, if I could talk to the younger version of me, what would I say to that, to that little girl or to that younger woman uh, to encourage or empower? What have I learned in my journey? that I want to reach back and tell her. And I'm going to ask Ambreen to read her letter to herself now. Dear Ambreen, I'm hoping by now you have made the life changes that you've been looking for. You have traveled a long journey full of challenges, but you have managed to overcome the obstacles that came along the way. You are probably moving towards a path that took you some time to find, but you know that you've been passionate about all along. This past year has not been easy for you in terms of health and career, but you have regained control and you have finally made the right choices. You are finally happy. Your health is finally where you want it to be. You're positive, energetic, and above all, at peace. You have finally reached the satisfaction that you've been looking for. You are positive. I'm so proud of you. I never doubted you. Always trust yourself and stay inspiring. Honest and inspiring, these are the words which define who you are. You have made it, and God has been kind and very helpful in your journey. Wishing you all the best for a great long journey. Just remember, you did it. And you did it. But the thing is, you're still doing it, and the world is grateful that you are. Before I let you go, it's two years from now. What are you doing with your dreams? Two years from now, I will be giving back to the community. I will be working for a nonprofit, being able to make a difference in somebody's life. So you're, you're ready to transition from corporate America to nonprofit? Yes, I am. So tell me what the seduction is to move to a nonprofit setting. So, you know, through my charitable work, Mm-hmm. I have finally understood what my purpose in life is, Ah. and my purpose in life is to help people. I am no more interested in advancement and corporate politics and monetary gains. Yes, I do need to work, but I want to work for a cause that's going to keep me passionate and for something that I truly believe in, and my cause is to be able to help people. Guess what? You're blessed, and you're blessing the world. And I cannot say thank you enough for being here with me now today. Thank you, Tyra. I'm honored to have been here. All right, ladies. i tell you what. There was information there. I hope some of you took some notes. That's what I hope. Now, you know, each week 
I try to leave you with a little encouragement just in case. I call it a spiritual doggy bag that um, just in case you have one of those days where you're feeling like you're not enough, where you feel like I'm tired of being tired. Or maybe you ask the question, is that all there is? Well, I have some thoughts for you to take along with you today. Your beliefs can be changed to lift you up. Whatever you believe to be true about you and life in the long term becomes your reality. Your beliefs are ingrained patterns of thinking that you build up over a lifetime. They are habitual ways of processing the world around you. If these beliefs don't work in your favor, guess what? You can change them. I hear you. Well, how am I going to do that, Tyra? Well, in the very same way, they got to be negative beliefs in the first place. Repetitive thoughts that you accept to be true. Ingrain new beliefs by consciously choosing and repeating messages that lift you up. The message that I want to leave for you today is, please understand whatever is on your mind, I am here. I am here to listen, to inspire, and to coach you into your courage. I am here to help you open the inaccessible areas of your heart. I am here until your fleeting spirit decides to stay. I am here to encourage you and empower you to accept these truths. You are worthy. You are not alone. You are not your circumstances. Nothing, I'm saying nothing that has happened to you in your life will be wasted. You have everything everything within you that you need to thrive. I want you to refuse to be refused. Your voice has saved you. I am here, and I am with you always. You're listening to Radio Fairfax, Fairfax, Virginia, on your TV, computer, or mobile device. And we are webcast worldwide on the Internet at www.radiofairfax.org. Now, you join us at 8 o'clock Eastern Standard Time every Saturday evening beginning September 9th, 2017. And to remind you, don't worry if you miss us. You can catch us on YouTube, www, Frankly Speaking with Tyra G. And again, if you feel like connecting with me offline, I'm here. Like I said, I'm listening. And guess what? I can't do this show without you. Please email me at Tyra. TyraGarlington.com. I'm going to ask Mr. Tony Walker to take us out with the piano version of our theme song. 